Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello everyone and welcome to the History of England, episode 96, The History of Medieval Europe, part 4. But before we start on the History of Europe, I thought it'd be nice to feedback on the great Edward II murder mystery result. Ta-da! It's quite interesting actually that the Facebook lot, you lot, were much, much more... Uh, less inclined to believe the conspiracy theory than the people on the website. Whereas the people on the website, it's always almost a half and a half between the believers and the non-believers. But in the end, the results were pretty clear. 70% of you went for option A. So the standard history, ignoring all the stuff about red pokers or pillows, 70% of you said, nah, he was killed by Mortimer in Barclay Castle. 10% of you said B, you were just fence-sitters, just decided you didn't know, we couldn't make any conclusions. And 15% of you went for option D, for Ian Mortimer's favourite theory. There were a few other theories lying around, which I particularly enjoyed. One was that Edward II was in fact Elvis, which I thought, you know, it all stacks up. It's all there if you're looking for it. All the evidence is there. Another person decided that actually Edward II was in a landfill site in Wisconsin. Also deeply believable. Yes, yes, yeah, interesting. And my favourite theory, actually, my personal favourite, was that the Wombles recycled him and cleared him away, which, you know, once you've said it, you realise how true it's got to be. Anyway, thanks very much to everybody for taking part. I really enjoyed seeing all the debate and all the comments and so on. So, on with the history of Europe. But before that, a message from our sponsor. Every week, or at least most weeks, I recommend an audiobook, courtesy of Audible. I can recommend Audible from personal experience. It's so much more affordable than CDs and there's a massive range. And you can get a free audiobook on a 30-day trial or discounted membership when you follow the link from my website 
thehistoryofengland.com. Today's recommendation comes from the History of England Facebook group. Very sorry, but I forget who made the recommendation, but thanks anyway to whoever it was. It's Temples, Tombs and Hieroglyphs, a popular history of ancient Egypt. Clearly, this has absolutely zip to do with the history of England, but a fascinating subject and looks like the kind of book that should appeal to those of you who want an easy-to-digest overview. Well, relatively easy-to-digest, given that it's 13 hours long, but you know what I mean. Last week, then, we reached the triumph of the papacy over the Hohenstaufen. The strains of the struggle for supremacy had far-reaching consequences. In the end, Sicily was impoverished. The papacy began to lose its moral leadership and Germany disintegrated into a welter of princedoms and archbishoprics and its power and influence on European affairs was for a while dispersed. Before moving to one of the most famous popes, Boniface VIII, we said we'd go back to have a look at France and its development in the 13th century. Because if the papacy thought that getting rid of the Hohenstaufen meant a quiet life, it had another thing coming. And that think spoke with a French accent. France and England have lots of similarities in the period, the struggle between royalty and regional lords for power, for example. But as it happens, there's a big difference that will have an influence on the two nations throughout the centuries that drove a basic difference of outlook. In England, the 13th and 14th centuries saw the steady restriction of the power of the crown and slow but consistent limitations on the growth of absolutism. In France, conversely, the period saw the very laying of the foundations of absolute monarchy, the monarchy that would eventually lose its head in the 18th century. There are three themes to this, really, though I'm sure you could find many more. But let's have a little list. Number one. The lack of a tradition of communal resistance to royal government. Number two. The differences in regionalism between England and France. And number three. Louis IX, otherwise known as St Louis. I should maybe have made that two points, because one and two are very much connected. The point about this is that France had a much greater variation between its regions and in the strength of its regional identity. And it still does, actually. The French monarchy, as we've seen, originated with a series of feudal relationships with local dukes, who had once been close to being regional monarchs. While their power is being slowly defrayed and the central authority increased, France never lost its particularism, its sense of regional differences. Now talk to a Brummie or a Geordie, and you'll find that it's plenty strong enough in England to boot, but in France, it's of a different order. Because it's built on this tapestry of local customs and laws that lasted for much longer than they did in England. What this meant was that there was no community of the realm in France in quite the same way as in England, that phrase we've heard so much over the last century. It was simply not possible to have the Magna Carta in France because there was no single community to have the argument with. Another factor worth mentioning is the financial power of the king. Now, although it's true to say that the Angevins, at their height, had financial resources that dwarfed the Capetians in France, even by the time of John, the French king had the financial wherewithal, and afterwards he was, as it were, rocking because the French monarchy had by this stage alienated far less of their domain land, and so their personal means gave them much more freedom of action. This has an impact on the development of the organs of state. 
the French monarchs had far less urgent a need to go begging cap in hand, or wimple in hand, to the people and their representatives for a handout. So the people never had that leverage of granting a tax that they did in England. We also mentioned St Louis, who reigned from 1226 to 1270 and had a profound impact on the status of the monarchy and the development of French government. The irony is that what he did, he did for the very best of reasons, but ended up achieving very different aims. Louis is an exceptional figure, but an entirely conventional one in the medieval sense. His achievement was a very personal one. So medieval man and medieval kings were meant to be pious, and St Louis majored in piety and graduated summa cum laude. He was personally frugal, he washed the feet of the poor, he associated with lepers to express solidarity and empathy. He was a thoroughly nice bloke, essentially. At the same time, he appreciated the need for the medieval monarch to live generously and magnificently. Socialism is a long way off, folks, and the Lord was expected to, well, lord it over everyone, but share a bit of the largesse with their followers on the way. In the modern idiom, he had his faults. He fully supported the prosecution of the Catha heresies, for example. But he was remarkable in genuinely trying to live up to the ideal of the Christian monarch and coming as close as anyone's managed. His lordship was thoughtful and well-meaning. He made a genuine and lasting effort to be fair to all his people of whatever station. Again, this isn't socialism, but it was fairness. His long reign firmly established the prestige and reputation of the French monarchy. So, snaps for Louis, but there was a kicker. In the hands of the less scrupulous, his legacy was to be used to very different ends. So, a couple of examples seem in order. First, his response to the need for justice was to build up a massive central bureaucracy and a network of royal officials who went out into the regions to see that justice really was being done. While these men were directed by Louis, that fell into the good thing category. When directed by Philip IV, it fell into the pain in the regional backside category. The instruments of royal justice in the hands of Louis became the instruments of royal control in Philip's. Another key example is the growth of representative government in France. In the Parlement, as I think we've already noted, you have a group of royal professionals, but not a group representing the communities of the realm. The closer equivalent to the English Parliament, actually, is the French Estates General, which brought together the three estates, nobility, church and the towns, to consult with the crown. But the similarities are misleading. The Estates General never sat together, but only separately. The divisions of class were much wider than in England, and so never came to form that community of interest that could really bargain with the crown. As a result... The Crown really used it just to tell people what was going on. Look, lads, we're going to have a war with the Pope. We'll let you know how it goes. Or, look, we're levying a massive tax on you lot. Just so you know, off you hop then. Thanks for coming. In England, this approach would have resulted in a punch-up, often as not. In France, they said, thanks for inviting me, and looked around hopefully for the party bag. Don't get me wrong, there's plenty of resistance to French central power, but it comes on a region-by-region basis by and large, and is therefore less effective. The very basis of kingship was different. There was none of that 
communal Germanic rubbish. Here it was Roman law. The king was the thing. Only he could make laws. In temporal matters he had no superior except God. The mere smell of something like the Scottish Declaration of Our Broth would have made Philip lay an egg. As a phrase his lawyers liked to use, what pleased him was law for all. So that's clear then. Again, for clarity, I'm not saying that there's no development of a sense of national identity, because just like in England, that's very much the case in France. The 13th century began to show the early development of the consciousness of national sovereignty, the concept of an idea and an authority above their immediate lord. It's a theme we'll come back to in spades with Edward III. But while the idea is the same, it gets represented differently in each country. It was just as well for the French kings that the Estates General was so compliant, because they had big ambitions. And once the Hohenstaufen had left, stage right, kicking and screaming, they really had no effective rivals. Certainly not, in the eyes of Philip IV, from some small, damp and slightly uncivilised island off their northwest coast. All around his kingdom, Philip strove to establish the authority of the crown internally and externally. This led to arguments and war with those regional leaders who failed to recognise his authority with suitable submissiveness. The Count of Flanders, for example, and our very own Duke of Gascony. But the opposition didn't only come from those regional overlords, but most significantly it came from the representative of the old ideal, the representative of a united Christendom. It was Boniface VIII who was to pay the price for the struggle against the empire, and learn the painful lesson that the idea of the Pope at the head of a united Christendom was dying, just as it seems to have won. Let's go back a step. During that struggle with Frederick and the subsequent struggles over Sicily with Charles of Anjou and the Aragonese, the financial and material support of the French and English had been crucial. Think of Henry III and all that money he spent, while the French had also been prepared to march into Aragon on crusade against the enemy of the Pope. Stunningly unsuccessfully as it happens, but there you go. To help with all these wars, Pope Gregory IX had started the convention of regularly levying attacks on the clergy. And by way of paying the French and English kings for their help, some of that money was given by the local clergy to the king. All of which built the relationship and interdependence of clergy and royalty. And of course, As we've constantly seen, the relationship between clergy and royalty was anyway close. Kings trawled the pools of clerics for their key officials and servants. Meanwhile, there were pressures pushing the papacy and their clergy further apart. One of these was the papal practice of rewarding their important Italian servants and allies by giving them benefices in distant lands like England, for example, allowing them to draw the revenue while not being there. This was, unsurprisingly, a little irritating if you happened to be in Lincoln and send a bag of silver over to some bloke with a sharp Italian suit that they never got to meet. Of course, while Pope and King were of the same mind, it didn't really matter too much. But when the war broke out in 1294 between Edward I and Philip IV, things got nasty. Both kings immediately turned to their clergy and demanded the taxes that they'd become accustomed to. Philip IV ordered all the clergy of France to pay a tax. 
In both countries, the clergy objected. In many provinces in France, they flatly refused to pay, and Philip instructed his royal officials to seize their goods. Boniface couldn't let this pass. He had to get involved and defend his clergy. And so in 1296, he issued the Clericos Laicos. These decrees forbade the clergy to cough up any cash unless expressly ordered to do so by the Pope. So here's the thing then. And actually, this isn't a new issue. It's been rumbling on for a few centuries. On the one hand, we've got Boniface. He's saying this. Church property, wherever it is, is there for spiritual ends. Any trespass on that by a secular power is an abuse of that power. In return, Edward and Philip were putting on a face of mixed incredulity and outrage in equal measure and saying, OK, so you're saying we can't ask our own subjects who have oodles of cash to contribute towards the needs of the country that they live in? You're having a laugh, aren't you? Edward and Philip's response demonstrated the weakness of the papal position. He could talk spiritual primacy as much as he liked. But when it came to making it stick, that phrase, you and whose army, would seem to be appropriate. So Edward, as we've discussed actually, basically said that the clergy were no longer in the king's peace and he'd come and get his money. And the clergy fell over themselves to buy their way back into his peace and favour at a price spookily similar to the original level of taxation they'd refused to pay. Philip was more sneaky and roundabout. He refused to allow any money to leave his kingdom. So that meant that the clergy could collect as much as they pleased, but it wasn't getting anywhere near the Pope. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewellery from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Whether Boniface was right or wrong, he was probably the wrong person to convince the outside world that he was to be trusted on a matter of principle and that his hands were clean. Now Boniface would claim needs must. He'd inherited the Holy See from a self-confessed administrative incompetent, a Pope who, if you can believe this, only cared about the worship of God. I mean, I ask you. So Boniface's approach to getting some competent administrators in there was to appoint various members of his own family. I've mentioned that the election of a new Pope was an opportunity for a local bun fight of vested interests. So the opposing vested interest a Roman family called the Colonna, were now willing at any and every opportunity to hop up and down and cry foul. In response, Boniface excommunicated them, to which they replied that he wasn't a lawful pope, so he couldn't excommunicate them anyway. So Boniface was forced to back down against Philip IV and against Edward. His next decree permitted clerics to pay the ruler his cash if it was an emergency, and the one after that said that the king could decide when it was an emergency. Kings won, Pope's nil. For Edward, that was enough. Unfortunately for Boniface, the next flashpoint was far more serious. 
In 1301, Philip IV declared a French bishop in the south of France treasonous. The bishop appealed to the Pope, and everyone held their breath and waited for the papal response. Surely, 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 Boniface wouldn't be daft enough to get involved. He was in an appallingly weak position. Time for a bit of discretion, or even a bit of judicious cowardice. But Boniface wasn't a man to walk away from a fight. Sadly, he was, as my grandfather would have said, as daft as a brush. Instead, he produced a bull, which was pretty much as inflammatory as you could possibly have devised. The point was that as a cleric, Boniface claimed the benefit of the clergy, and the case should therefore be heard in his courts. Meanwhile, Philip's point was that this was a treason charge. Surely he could try people who threatened the crown. Boniface summoned the clergy of France to come and sit in judgment on the kings of France, and the implication was clear. Temporal authority was subject to spiritual. Boniface could summon to his heart's content, but only very few of the most dedicated of French bishops came to his session. Boniface may have wished that he'd ordered fewer canapes, but he wasn't a man to cancel a party for want of guests, and the result of the meeting was the bull of Unum Sanctum. And here was a naked and straightforward and completely unequivocal statement of the Pope's temporal sovereignty. For centuries, Popes and Kings and Emperors had danced around each other in increasingly elaborate patterns. Boniface dispensed with all of that and just went for it. If secular power strays from the way, said the bull, it shall be judged by the spiritual. Without doubt, the bull not only asserted the supremacy of the Pope, it also by clear implication condemned Philip IV. Poor old Boniface was to learn just how things had changed since the days of Innocent III. How much more powerful now was the sense of national identity over the idea of a united Christendom. Philip fought a nasty little smear campaign against Boniface. He combined with the Colonna family to deny the Pope's legitimacy. He was no Pope, they said. Philip's right-hand man in all of this was a chap called Nogare. Nogare was a lawyer. He was not a lawyer searching for freedom and the rights of man. Nogare was the kind of lawyer the Godfather keeps at his side. So Nogare and Philip hatched an undeniably daring plot. The Colonna would grab the Pope and drag him captive into France. There they'd force him to summon a church council, since only the Pope could do that. He would then be tried in line with the procedure of the Inquisition, i.e. he wouldn't be allowed to speak in his defence. The file of evidence prepared for that trial was stuffed full of grubby little stories. That Boniface was an unbeliever who dealt in magic, who bought women and boot boys for sex. Never think that political smear campaigns are a function of the modern world. Philip the Fair would have put any modern master of spin to shame. They got very close to pulling it off. Nogare slipped into Italy and met up with the Colonna. By this stage Boniface was a very sick man and he was surprised and captured at his palace of Agnani. While his captors argued over the next step, and gloated over Boniface, famously, the Colonna was supposed to have delivered the Agnani slap to the sick old man. News spread like wildfire around the town, the townspeople stormed to the palace and rescued the Pope, while Nogare fled for his life like the dark spirit of Sauron. Boniface fled back to Rome, 
where he soon died of fever. Boniface may have avoided the ultimate humiliation, but it was effectively the end of the medieval papacy, an end to the unquestioned unity of Christendom. A period of captivity and exile was to follow for the papacy itself, weak popes in the pocket of the French and ultimately the move of the popes to Avignon. The popes had seen off the power of the emperors, but had been broken on the rock of the French monarchy. Philip soon had an opportunity to try out his new tool that he gained. He had a problem. Constant war, particularly against Flanders, was giving him money problems. With increasing desperation, Philip looked around him for a solution and found an answer fully worthy of the man. His next target was to be the Knights Templar. Now next week we'll have a guest episode from Sharon Eastor about the Templars, so I'll not go into their history in any depth but suffice it to say that the wealth of the Knights Templar had increased in inverse proportion to their success in defending the holy places against the infidel. Because of their international nature, the Knights Templar had become a kind of European bank, and one of their biggest debtors was his nibs, Philip of France. Now I have a friend who has a simple philosophy. When in trouble, or in the wrong, attack. On the 12th of October 1307, the Grand Master of the Templars, Jacques de Moulet, was a pallbearer at the funeral in Paris. The following day, he and all the Templars in France had been arrested and accused, and Philip had demanded of the Pope, Clement V, that the entire order be condemned and disbanded. The thrust of the accusations against the Templars were that they had become a heretical evil sect. There were five accusations, and you can judge how likely these are to be true. Here we go, and answers on a postcard. Number one, the Templars renounced the cross and stamped and spat on it. Number two, in the initiation ceremony, the applicant was stripped naked and then kissed the preceptor on the navel, buttocks and mouth. Number three, all kinds of sexual practices were encouraged. Number four, they worshipped idols, and I'm not talking pop idols. Number five, priests did not consecrate the host during Mass. Jacques de Molay and the French Templars were tortured and predictably all agreed that, yes, you're absolutely right, caught bang to rights, and would you mind leaving my toenails alone, please? To give him his due, Clement V proved he wasn't a complete pushover. He tried to establish the rights and wrongs of the matter and in front of his cardinals, Jacques de Molay denied all those things he'd owned up to under torture but it did him no good. The best Clement could do was to have the Templars merged with the other biggest order, the Hospitallers and thereby avoiding having them condemned. Different countries dealt with all of this in different ways. In Portugal, they just changed the name of the Templars so that they could keep them. In England, Edward II initially refused to take any action at all until the Pope ordered him to. The Templars were then duly tried, none were tortured, and only one bloke saw the inside of a prison. In France, things were different, and when I say different, I kid you not. Quite apart from all the torturings, 54 Templars were burnt at the stake outside Paris before they could be questioned by the Papal Commissioners. 
At the Council of Vienne in 1312, the Knights Templar were finally disbanded as an organisation, but again not condemned. In this case, unlike the argument with Boniface, there was widespread scepticism outside France about these absurd charges. So in this case, the Pope was able to resist the full demands of the French king and able to disband the Templars simply on his own authority without reference to the approval of secular authorities. So when we come to the end of Boniface, we said that it was the end of the unquestioned unity of Christendom. But it's not quite dead yet. There's one more story to be told about the Templars, which is the story of the old Grand Master, Jacques de Molay. He languished in prison until May 1314, when the final show trial finally took place outside Notre Dame in Paris. Jacques and three masters of the Templars were brought in front of the cardinals. The cardinals solemnly imposed a penance on them for the sins they'd confessed to, which was to be lifelong imprisonment, and that should have been that. But Jacques and his friends had had time to think, and they surprised everyone. They rose and declared that none of the stuff they'd admitted to was true. It was all the result of torture. They were hurried back into jail, while the cardinals debated and worried about what they should do. Philip IV had absolutely no doubt whatsoever. He was livid, and he ordered that the Templars burn. On the same day, de Molay was set to the stake on a small island in the River Seine. He was allowed to have his hands tied as though in prayer, but the churchmen burned them slowly, constantly asking them to admit to their crimes and be spared, and save Philip's blushes to boot. But this time... De Molay held firm, and therefore earned himself martyrdom. Before he died, he is supposed to have issued the famous curse of the Templars. Within one year, he is supposed to have said, God will summon both Clement and Philip to his judgment for these actions. Within the year, both Philip and Clement were indeed dead. Spooky. France was then launched on its dynastic tragedy, which saw all the sons of Philip die childless, leaving them with a succession crisis that would launch a hundred years of war on the French soil. Now then, that brings us pretty much up to date, and leaves a few minutes for a bit more. So, let's spend the rest of the episode with Spain, if that's alright with you. Quick recap, given that it's a year since last time. You've got your Visigoths, conquered in the Arabic expansion... Charles Martel and Charlemagne save a slice in the north of Spain for Christianity. Gradual Reconquista, and then the crucial battle of La Navas de Tolosa in 1212, which effectively ended Muslim chances of controlling the Spanish peninsula, but equally still left the surviving Muslim kingdom in the south in Granada. So what happens over the next hundred years is a rather confused process of Christian expansion while the remaining Muslim territories outside Granada are mopped up, and warring and politics, which is less Muslim against Christian and more prince against prince, where Granada was just one more piece in the game. It makes sense at this point, by the way, if you are able to refer to the map of Spain on the website. What happens over the period is the gradual consolidation of the various kingdoms. We'll have a lot further still to go at the end of the 14th century, but the process is well on its way. Two kingdoms come to predominate. 
Clearly, it's impossible now to avoid thinking of small, furry, fantasy creatures with furry feet. But you need to remember that the kingdom of Aragon in the northeast of Spain has nothing to do with the Middle-earth. Rather than struggling against Sauron and the forces of evil, it tends to struggle against the other superpower of the peninsula, Castile. On the edges of Aragon and Castile are three other kingdoms. Navarre, up at the top, straddling the Pyrenees, which spends its time trying to stay in existence, which he does pretty well. Portugal in the east is cut off from the expansion opportunities eastwards at the expense of the Muslim states, and so instead, before too long, it will start exploring across the Atlantic and beyond. And then in the far south is Granada, the surviving Muslim kingdom, as we've said. So let's focus on the two main Christian kingdoms, starting with Aragon. Aragon, in fact, incorporated Catalonia, and through the period would bring Valencia and the Balearic Islands into its orbit too. It is, in effect, rather like a confederation of semi-autonomous states, each one headed by the same monarch. Each state established their own representative assembly during the 13th century, called a Cortes. And if you need evidence of the autonomous bit, here's a very, very straight-talking preamble to a Charter of Liberties. We, who are as good as you, and together are more powerful than you, make you our king and lord, provided you observe our charter and liberties, and if not, not. I think that makes it clear which buttocks the trousers are covering. Aragon was blessed throughout the 13th and 14th century with a very stable dynasty, a series of long-serving and effective kings with an easy transition of power until the House of Barcelona comes to an end in 1410. There appears to be something of a fetish with nicknames, so Jaime the Conqueror gives way to Peter the Great, to Alfonso the Liberal, Jaime the Fair, and so on. Peter the Ceremonious is my fave, and it's quite fun to speculate what name I might have had as a monarch. David the Porky, maybe. Or Dave the Slightly Distracted. Clearly it's a game that offers hours of fun for all the family, and I advise that you play it. Something like 30-35% to 35 of Aragon continued to be Muslim, and throughout our period, Muslim, Christian and Jew rub along pretty well. And under this fortunate dynasty, Aragon, and particularly Catalonia, undergoes something of a golden age of trade and expansion. Not just about the conquest of the Balearic Islands and Valencia, but also industrial exports in exchange for slaves and spice from the east. So much so that the first codified maritime law is apparently written in Catalonian. So there's a fab fact for you. By the mid-14th century, this burst of expansion is slowing down and receives the coup de grace at the hands of the Black Death. From 1230, Castile, on the other hand, incorporated the Kingdom of Léon, when Alfonso IX died and Ferdinand III invaded and added the crown of Léon, to that of Castile. During our period, its development was dominated by the reconquest of land from the Islamic kingdoms, which meant it differed in a few ways to Aragon. First of all, was the close partnership with the crown and the nobility and the church and its military orders to reconquer land from the Islamic states. 
The lands they gain remain sparsely populated. There are never enough people available to settle. And as a result, sheep farming dominates the Castilian economy, since it needs fewer people. In payment for help in the reconquest, after each success, the crown granted vast tracts of lands to the nobility and church, and as a result created a powerful check on the power of the throne. Not that the Castilian crown bore this easily. The 13th and 14th century saw a constant struggle by the crown to establish its authority. This led Alfonso X and Peter the Crawl to try to establish a new concept of monarchy, one which was bound not by a feudal contract, but a more universal relationship between king and his natural subjects, as they called it. It's a neat concept, if establishing an absolute monarchy is your game. However, during the 14th century, Castile's monarchy was something of a revolving door. We've all become used to the idea of a monarchy based on primogeniture. But in Castile, the older concept of the rule of the most successful lived on a little while longer. So by the mid-14th century, Spain has consolidated to effectively two leading kingdoms who play an increasingly active role in European diplomatic affairs and are beginning to look up from the work of reconquest which had preoccupied them to this point. There's so much more I could cover in this episode. The invasion of the Mongols, for example. The expansion into Eastern Europe. The Teutonic Knights. But really, there's far too much, so I'm going to have to leave it there. Next time you hear from me, we'll go back to the main story. Can our young, heroic Prince Edward run his own life? Or will he be forever enthralled to mum and her living lover? I promise you, we'll find out next time. However, the next time you hear from the History of England, it will be Sharon Eastor and her episode on the History of the Templars. Which means it only remains for me to thank everyone who comments on the website or iTunes or who joins the Facebook group, or indeed, to all of you for listening. And grateful thanks to Leanne for her kind donation. Good luck everyone, and have a great week. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 